Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today, I'm meeting virtually with Alice Faye Duncan from her home in Memphis, Tennessee. In January, she had two children's books published, Evicted, The Struggle for the Right to Vote, and Opal Lee and What It Means to Be Free, The True Story of the Grandmother of Juneteenth. Alice Faye has published 10 children's books and has several more forthcoming. Her book, Memphis, Martin, and the Mountaintop, received a 2019 Coretta Scott King Illustrator Honor. She is also a high school librarian. Alice Faye, I thoroughly enjoyed both of these books, and I can't wait to share them with my kids. Thanks so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. Thank you for having me, Marva. Many of your books provide historical accounts of the Black experience in the U.S. Evicted is a middle grade book about sharecroppers in Fayette County, Tennessee, who were tossed from their homes by the white farmers they worked for because they dared to register to vote. For about two years, many of them ended up living in what the media called a tent city on land donated by one of the few black property owners at the time. And Opal Lee and What It Means to Be Free is about the woman behind the now federal holiday that commemorates the end of slavery. As a writer, what draws you to these stories? Okay, so I live in the city of Memphis. Memphis is almost like, I would say, an epicenter of the civil rights movement in the Mid-South. And so, you know, Emmett Till was murdered or lynched in Money, Mississippi. That's very close to Memphis. Uh, Dr. King was assassinated in Memphis. That happens in Memphis. Um, um, James Meredith and and his march uh, to enter Ole Miss, that happens 60 miles away from Memphis. So so Little Rock, two hours away from Memphis. Um, Medgar Evers, three hours away, Jackson, Mississippi, Memphis. So Memphis is like uh, just... um, uh, a, a hotbed of civil rights activity and tragedy, right? Um, and so I am a child of the 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 sixties. I grew. I, I was born in 1967, so I came first generation. I guess you would say desegre, uh, desegregated generation integration. First generation integration. Uh, black child, you know, going to integrated schools. Uh, also grew up as a little kid during the Black Power Movement. Both of my mother, my mother and my father were educators. They wore afros. They made sure that I had Black books. They talked about, um, you know, Black history. And then something else that was working in my favor that made me turn my attention to the types of books I write is that many of those uh, civil rights activists and the players who are part of uh, Dr. King's coming to Memphis were a part of my community. How do I explain that? Ernest Withers, who was the photographer to take uh, Dr. King's last pictures. I grew up in a community where a lot of the participants in uh, Dr. King's being in Memphis were a part of my neighborhood. For example, Ernest Withers, 
the the famous civil rights photographer. He was my church photographer. He Ernest Withers was the photographer who came to our church and took pictures of weddings. And he took, you know, he took pictures of very special days, Pastor Appreciation Day, et cetera, and so on. So Ernest Withers was very much part of my community. I knew him when my mother would see him, father would see him. It was always there's Ernest Withers, the photographer, who, right? Um, I lived in Memphis to get to church. We had to pass the Lorraine Motel every Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so every when we pass the church, it's always a piece of conversation. Oh, the Lorraine Motel, this is the place where what? Dr. King was assassinated. Um, and so I, I grew up loving to read books. I grew up loving Black history. And then I grew up those uh, proponents of Black history that were in my community, they were highlighted for me. And my parents had pride about that and they shared that pride uh, with me. And so I'm an only child. I used to write because being an only child, you spend a lot of time alone. Writing was one way that I uh, entertained myself. And as I grew up, Oh, another thing too, the reason why I think I I write the different African-American history subject areas that I do is because I had this fortuitous encounter, Marva, when I was in the sixth grade. This is the reason why I write, period. Not related to the subject matter, but just the reason why I write. And I knew as a young child that I wanted to publish books. Okay, so this happens in sixth grade. Um, In sixth grade class, Teacher says, we're going to have a a poet that's going to visit us today. And I'm like, okay, because, you know, I'm an only child. So I've been writing uh, to entertain myself. And I'd never really thought about being published, but I just knew I love writing. So when this poet comes, who is the poet who comes to visit us? Child, it's Etheridge Knight. Etheridge Knight, the literary son of Gwendolyn Brooks. He steps into our sixth grade classroom looking like my daddy or my uncle right down from the apple cap to the scar on his face. I'm like, oh my God, what is this man going to tell us today? So he proceeds to read poems to us. He proceeds to tell us about how, you know, he was discovered by Gwendolyn Brooks and he proceeds to tell us that he has published several, you know, several books. And I'm like, published books. And I'm like, someone can make a living publishing books. Someone can make a living being a poet. And then also I'm thinking the poets that I love to read were uh, Maya Angelou, Gwendolyn Brooks, Langston Hughes, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, because those were the poets that my mom and my dad had on their bookshelves. Right. And so you know, I wasn't aware that Maya was still alive. I wasn't aware that Gwendolyn Brooks was still alive. I just assumed that anybody whose poems or words I read in a book, I assumed that they were just dead people and I was reading their work. So also for Etheridge Knight to show up at my school that day, a living, breathing poet speaking about he was making his life as a published author. That's the thing that made me think, oh, when I grow up, I can be a published author also. And so, and as I evolved and went to college and went to grad school, it was then that I said, I had to decide like, okay, so if I want to write books, what type of books am I going to write? Who will be my demographic? 
And when I went to library school to get my master's degree, that's when I decided definitively that I was going to write picture books for children. And I would write about Black joy, uh, because like a lot of my books are about a, a mother's love for her child, Honey Baby Sugar Child, Just Like a Mama, <laughs> a song for Gwendolyn Brooks, a pa Black parents love for their child. Um, so I would write about Black joy and I would also write about those unexplored moments in uh, African-American history, like the assassination of Dr. King with my book, Memphis Martin in the Mountaintop, like uh, Opal Lee and what it means to be free, the story of Juneteenth, and like my story, um, evicted the struggle for the right to vote. Well, in that book, Evicted, mm -hmm. you focus on James Jr. Jamerson, yes. who was a child living in Fayette County during this time, mm -hmm. and his adopted parents who were activists involved in getting sharecroppers to register to vote. Mm -hmm. His father was a farmer who had served in World War II. He owned his own farm and a four-room house. His mother was a teacher who lost her job when she registered to vote. And through James's eyes, we see his concern for his friends who are losing their homes and the sort of transformation he goes through, how this quiet child becomes a young man who gets involved in the movement. He starts to attend protests and he actually integrates a formerly all-white high school despite facing violent resistance. What does it do for your readers when you focus on a child their age? Well, okay. So like there's this thing that people who aspire to be uh, entrepreneurs and tycoons do. So what they do is they go and they read about Carnegie and they go and they read about Vanderbilt, right? Because they're saying, I want to uh, be a successful entrepreneur also. So they go and read what successful entrepreneurs do, right? Right. And so what I hope happens with my books is that as we want young children to be brave, as we want young children to uh, use and activate their agency in the service uh, for themselves and for others, I think that the good way to do that is to show them young people who are have already done it when they were their age. You know, like grown folks just don't rise up grown doing, you know, brave things. They usually start small and young, making those steps, doing brave things. Isn't that what we want young people to do? What was it like for you actually to meet James Jamerson and talk to him about this time in his life for your research? You know, what's really amazing is that I live in Memphis. Again, it's something for me, it's, it's something very um, intentional, <laughs> for Providence to place me in Memphis and then have the purpose of writing, you know, in my life. So I live in Memphis. Memphis literally, Marva, is 50 miles. I mean, yeah, 50 miles from Fayette County, which is where uh, the tent city voting registration movement happened, right? It's only 50 miles away. All right, let's go back to Ernest Withers. 
In 2006, I went to a funeral. One of my African-American doctors that had been my doctor all my life, he died in 2006. I go to the funeral. What did I tell you about Ernest Withers? Ernest Withers was the photographer that did all the weddings and all the special days. Well, another thing that Ernest Withers often would do is whenever Black dignitary in Memphis passed away, as long as Ernest Withers was alive, you could depend on him to be at their funeral doing what? Taking, taking pictures, photos, right? Okay. Pictures and documenting the moment. So when I see Ernest Withers at Dr. Northcross's uh, funeral, I th I think, oh, I'm writing a book because at the time it was 2006. I was writing a book about the Memphis sanitation strike and Dr. King's assassination. So at the time I say, you know what? I'm going to see if Ernest Withers uh, will allow me to interview him about the sanitation strike. And so I see him. I was like, hey, you know, Mr. Withers, you know, can I interview you today about the sanitation strike? Because I'm a children's writer and I'm writing a book. And he says, yeah, sure. He says, uh, this is what you do. As soon as the funeral is over, he says, I want you to meet me on Bill Street at my studio and you can e interview me there. And I was like, OK, OK, I'll do that. So funeral was over, all of that. I get in my car and I go and I meet him and him keeping his word. He's right there at the door waiting on me. I go in, we talk. He has like photographs strewn all over the floor, all over the tables, all over file cabinets, file cabinets. Open. I mean, it's like he needs a, a, an assistant or a secretary or something. Pictures are everywhere. I was like, I see these pictures of uh, the sanitation strike. I see those, these pictures of, of the minister who was my childhood preacher. I buy one. Can you imagine? Ernest Withers allowed me to buy a like a big old, I mean, it was a big, huge painting. It was beyond, it was about like a 10 by 15 for like $50. Can you believe that? He was like, yeah, just give me $50 for it. And, um, and so... I, I bought a painting. I wanted to leave him with something that was mine. And I had one of my uh, early civil rights books, um, uh, Everyday People. It's called Everyday People, the National Civil Rights Museum celebrates everyday people. I think that was the title. Yes. But I had it had a, a signed copy with me. So I wanted to give him something that was mine since I was purchasing a photograph of his. So I gave him an uh, autographed book of mine. And he's like, well, let me give you a book of mine. I'm like, oh, I was just winning. All right. I was just winning that day. And he gives me this collection of his civil rights photographs. And oh. so when I get home, I open up the book and I'm reading the book and I come to the section on Fayette County and the tent city voting rights registration movement. And I'm seeing the faces of these sad farmers and their sad faced children. And I'm saying, who are these people? And I, I found I had never heard of the tent city voting rights registration movement before. But immediately when I read the, the uh, photograph notes, I began to search for more information about this movement. It wasn't the right time to pursue the story because I was so preoccupied with the sanitation strike story. So about like two years after that, I started to pursue the story seriously. Tried to do interviews and things. Nothing happened. And then in 2019, 
all of the stars lined up. I was like, I need to get serious about writing this history. And I then started looking up the names of farmers and participants and family members in like, in like online and in other books about that movement. And so I found this woman's name. It said her name was Tolls. Um, her name was Irma Tolls. I think it was. And uh, I called in the white pages and I said, hey, I'm a children's author and I'm writing a children's book on Tent City. And then she gave me the name of her brother-in-law who was um, Laverne Tolls. And then Laverne Tolls led me to James Jamerson, right? And so then he led me to other people. And it was just this web of people who were involved in the movement. James Jamerson then invited me to Fayette County um, over the course of a whole month. Every Saturday, I traveled to Fayette County interviewing him, interviewing Mr. Laverne Tolls, interviewing, interviewing the first uh, mother who, uh, whose family moved to Tent City with her husband and four children, Miss Mary Williams. Um, interviewed them during every Saturday over the course of November 2019. And because I knew I wanted to write the book from the perspective of a child. That's when I honed in on James Jamerson's story, who he was an adopted child. And when his sister dies, when, when he's about six or so, he becomes what I call like a selective mute. You know, he, he doesn't really talk that the tragedy of his sister dying makes him really somewhat of a quiet and reclusive kid. And he doesn't talk a whole lot. But but over the course of that time, um, he said, I said, your parents never, I mean, because his parents were activists. I said, your parents never encouraged you to join the movement. And he's like, no. He said, I skipped school one day on my own to go march with them. He said, they never said, with the son, this is what we want you to do. He said, I saw them and I wanted to emulate what they were doing. And so that's why I wrote the story about James and meeting him was inspiring. You know, you say, how was that? Meeting him was inspiring. And um, and knowing him now is truly inspiring. And he's still, he's not a, you know, he's still not a chatty, chatty person, but he is very interested in talking with people about the movement and very interested in his grandchildren, especially knowing what their grandparent, their great grandparents did and what he did and what others did to make sure they had a right to vote. I think it's also important to say that this happened in the late fifties and early sixties because so many times people to children, it might seem like, and probably still seems to them like, well, that was such a long time ago, Mm -hmm. but it, it really wasn't. And that these people are still here and you're able to interview them about their experiences. Right. And you know what, what children often want to know when I talk to like high school kids about evicted and that history is they want to know, like it was 1959. How were the, how were black people in Fayette County? They were the, they were 70% the majority of the population. It's a town of like 30,000 people. They were 70, black people were 70% 
uh, the 70% majority. How is it in a town where black people are 70% majority and it is not against the law, it's not against the law to vote. How is it that they were not voting? And I'd say voter suppression and voter intimidation is a real terrorizing thing. And so what happened in that area, because now mind you, Fayette County is only 50 miles away from Memphis and black folks in Memphis were absolutely voting. Whole nother story how they were doing that. But black folks in Memphis were absolutely voting while 50 miles away when it was less than 30 people on the voting black. It was less than 30 black people on the voting roll in 1959 in Fayette County. Okay. And children want to know why is that? And I say racial terror. Racial intimidation, lynching, the history of lynching, the history of lynching and racial terror in that agriculture environment where white folks were the minority, but they controlled the employment because they controlled the land and farming was the main industry. Terror, terrorism, the hunting and history of that kept the people in their place until 1959 when. There is the first um, black lawyer comes to town to try a case for murder and the black farmers want to sit on the jury and the black lawyer must tell them you can't sit on this jury. Why can't they? Why can't they sit on that jury so that they can make sure that that black man gets a fair trial in this murder case? They can't sit on the jury because they are not what? Reg Registered to vote. Yes. And so when that happens, Jane, uh, John McFerrin, who is the farmer who gets it in his mind, he's going to set up this rural uh, registration drive. He gets it in his mind. This will never happen again. It will never happen again where a black man goes to trial in Fayette County and we black people are not on the voting roll. It will never happen again where black people are not voting in state, city, state, and federal elections. And so with the help of the black lawyer, J.F. Estes, who came to town to do that case, John McFerrin and his farmer, black farmer peers, they organized the very first grassroots voting rights registration drive in America. It happens 50 miles from Memphis in the rural confines of West Tennessee. You mentioned the tactics that were used to keep black people from registering to vote. And in Evicted, you write about James's adopted dad being influenced by a lynching he was told about by his grandfather that happened in 1915. Yeah. And there's an illustration in the book that shows the victim's dangling feet and the copy mentions grinning white people taking his picture and white children dancing around him in circles, happy to be missing a day of school. That is hard to read, even as an adult. Why do you think it's so important that we tell these difficult stories to our children? You know, if we do not record our history and leave a record of the past of what has happened, the trials and the triumphs, both of them. If we do not leave a record expressing what has happened to us individually and collectively as a people, 
There are unscrupulous people who are so crafty and cunning that they will say what happened to us never happened. They will say that there is no such thing as slavery. They will say that Holocaust, there was no such thing as Holocaust. But if we leave a record, you cannot deny that we have not only struggled, but we have survived and we have prevailed triumphantly. And so I write what I write because I want to leave a record so children will know what they are made of. They are made of strength. They are made of tenacity. They are made of perseverance. They are made of courage. They are made of unmistakable, undeniable bravery. All human beings, in fact, and because I want, I want white kids and brown kids, I want all kids to read my books to understand that we are all feeble, frail human beings capable of doing brave things. And that's, that's why it's important to share that story about 1915, which uh, the name of the poem you're referencing is uh, The Ghost of Thomas Brooks. That is an actual lynching that happened in Somerville. But that's also what I'm saying to you about why the people were not voting. The hunting, H-A-U-N-T-I-N-G, the hunting of real terror in that na in that area, in that region, so plagued the the um collective subconscious. The, the people just, they said, hey, I'm a farm. I'm going to make a living. I'm going to take care of my kids. I'm going to love my kids. And, you know, and I'm going to try to give them the best life I can within the confines of this work a day thing that I'm doing on this farm. And uh, we're going to go to church and we're going to, I'm going to show them how to love each other and, you know, hope they grow up to then, you know, get jobs or move away um, or own their own farm, maybe. Right. Um, and then but John McFerrin said, you know, enough of that. It's time to be first class American citizens and 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 gain our right to vote. Evicted was illustrated by Charlie Palmer and his acrylic work really enhances your writing. I mean, such a beautiful book. What does it mean to you as a writer to have such evocative artwork accompany your words? Um, you, you know, I've been writing picture books now for 30 years. I wrote my first picture book in 1993. And it's, the thing about picture books is that the words and the pictures are integral. You cannot have the pictures uh, without the words. You cannot have the words without the pictures uh, for a picture book with text. Um, and so the, the, the fortuitous thing is when editors make a perfect selection, you know, it's like matchmaking done right. Um, and 
Charlie Palmer, interesting enough, Charlie Palmer uh, comes from a place, I think, called Fayette, North Carolina. Uh, I, you're from North Carolina. Is there a place? Maybe called- Fayetteville. There's a Fayetteville, North Carolina. Fayetteville, North Carolina, right. And so, and and he was born, I think, in 1960. So when I saw that, that he was born in a place called Fayetteville and he was born in 1960, which is right in the era of uh, Tent City happening, I thought, ah, th- you know, that's just a wink from heaven uh, showing me that, you know, this was a cosmic collaboration and it was supposed to be because his work is really it's really sublime it's beautiful well let's talk a little bit about the other book you had come out last month mm-hmm. about opal lee yeah um you got to meet and talk to her she yeah. is the woman who campaigned for juneteenth to be made a federal holiday yes and just to tell readers who might not know about it june 19th 1865 is when word reached slaves in Texas that they were free. Uh, That was two years after President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, declaring that all slaves in Confederate states were free. So slavery has to be one of the most difficult topics to write about for young children, but you do it so well in this book. What is your thought process as you approach a book like this? It is always to be as spare, as to be as spare, as terse, as precise as I can. I don't want to labor young readers with a lot of words. So it's the same thing that I do in Evicted when I'm speaking about the lynching. What I do there is I don't make that that discussion a narrative. I make it a poem because poems are very spare, right? They're lyrical, they're like music, right? And so just like the blues, I can be given singing you a sad song, but it's lyrical, it's rhythmic. And so you are receiving it emotionally, right? Uh, but but gladly, right? And and so that's what I do. That's what I did with the Juneteenth story, which is about slavery, which is about the aftermath of slavery, is the book is very, very spare. And I also try to write it like as a call and response so that it will engage children. So it's a lot of lines in the book that lend themselves to being repeated by the listener after as the parent or the teacher or the librarian Um is reading is reading it. I'm trying to see. Yeah, there's a there's a um th- there's a, a line here um that goes freedom, hope, and joy divine. Juneteenth means it's freedom time. You know, you could just keep saying that and saying that over and over again, but yet in that one statement, it gives you everything that Juneteenth means. Juneteenth means freedom. Juneteenth means hope. Juneteenth means joy divine, right? It's not a long, uh, you know, not a long dissertation in explaining what Juneteenth is. Children don't need long dissertations. Children need the magic of poetry and words. And so that's what I 
try to do with all of my books, especially because it seems as a writer, you know, the heavy, weighty things have uh, have chosen me like to write about the assassination of Dr. King. In my book, there's a poem I wrote. It's called uh, Mountaintop. And it 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 puts in a nutshell what Dr. King's life means to me, you know, uh, dream big, walk tall, be strong, march on, don't quit, never stop, climb up the mountaintop. That's Dr. King's life, but it's not, you know, he was born in Atlanta and when he was five, he changed his name and then he went to school at college at 14, you know? So that's what I try to do. I just try to write these stories in something, not ring rhymey, sing rhymey, but just something that's poetic and spare and right to the point. Well, you also, as we mentioned, you got to meet Opal Lee, uh, who was 94 when President Biden signed a bill into law in 2021, making Juneteenth a federal holiday. What was it like meeting her? It was joyful. It was um, it, it was inspiring. So so here's the thing that happened. Um, the way I got the opportunity to write the Opal Lee book, it was not an idea of my own. Um, an editor at HarperCollins was familiar with my Memphis Martin and the Mountaintop book, and. Uh, Har- Harper Collins that year of 2020, the summer of George Floyd, Harper Collins, it was also the summer of Opal Lee. Uh, as we were um, coping with the tragedy of George Floyd, above that rage was Opal Lee's clarion call about Juneteenth and about unity and about us forging uh, relationships uh, with each other to help make Juneteenth a holiday where people could gather together under the banner of liberation and freedom, no matter who you are. And so the, the editors at HarperCollins uh, thought, oh, what a timely time to write a children's biography about this shining beacon of light, Opal Lee from Fort Worth, Texas. They needed a writer. And the editor knew my work, Memphis Martin and Mountaintop. So she contacted me because she thought since I had handled the assassination of Dr. King in such a way that was accessible to young people, she thought that I would be the perfect writer to write about Opal Lee and the trial and the triumphs of that Juneteenth history. Today, in many areas, books like yours are under attack. Mm-hmm. We've, yeah, we've seen books about civil rights leaders like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks removed from school library shelves. In York, Pennsylvania, this went on for nearly a year. Mm-hmm. And it was only after several protests led by students that they were returned. What do you think is behind this? And does it worry you about the fate of your own books? Well, no, I'm not worried. I'm not worried. Um, This is my opinion. Uh, Did they not take prayer out of the schools? 
did they not take prayer out of the schools? Oh, you, there's no organized prayer. There's no organized prayer in school. Are you praying in, at your house? We do. Yes. You do. Right. So you, they took prayer out of the schools, but you're still praying at your house. Right. I believe that teachers, librarians, and parents have a responsibility to, to what is the word, to strategize on keeping good books in schools, right? So if the book banners are strategizing to keep the books out of school, parents, teachers, librarians, uh, educators need to strategize and uh, participate in activities to keep the books in schools, right? Right. Everybody needs to be an activist, right? So I'm promoting activism in that regard. But in the case when your, your actions fail, it is going to be mandatory, paramount, that parents share um, these histories, her stories, and their stories with their children. Um, it's time for us to activate in terms of voting. It's time for us to activate in terms of a living wage. Um, it's time for us who believe in freedom to activate, uh, Ella Baker. Um, but in the meantime, when your activism fails, if it should fail, you do what you have to do to make sure that literacy and critical thinking thrives at your house. What did Mama Linga, uh, Mama Lena say in uh, Raised in the Sun? <laughs> you know, as for us in this house, you know, we praise the Lord. So as for you and your house, you all, you know, and, and parents and, and, and aunties and grandmamas who believe in literacy and learning, you know, you're just going to have to share the Opal Lee books with your children. You're just going to have to take them to the library to get those Opal Lee books. You're going to have to, you know, take them to the library to get that evicted book, or you're going to have to purchase that evicted book. Um, we have to just be responsible for the learning that takes place in our own home. And guess what? Sometimes your neighbor doesn't have money for a book. And sometimes your neighbor is not taking their kids to the library. So you also, we also have to be aware that we are responsible. We are our sister's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. And we need to also make ourselves accessible to helping them do what they need to do for their children and for their community. So yeah, uh, help their children, make sure that their children have books and make sure that their parents have a ride to the voting poll. Okay. Well, Alice Faye, I thank you so much for talking to me about both of your books that are out now. Um, just phenomenal books for children. If you are looking for a book for your child to start telling them about the civil rights movement, the vote, the, uh, fight for the vote, uh, or if you want to start telling them about Juneteenth and what that's all about, I uh, highly recommend Evicted, The Struggle for the Right to Vote. 
and Opal Lee and what it means to be free, the true story of the grandmother of Juneteenth. So Alice Faye Duncan, I so appreciate your time. And Oh, hey, if you want to visit me, um, your listeners can visit me at www.alicefayduncan.com because I have more books that will be arriving uh, in the fall of 2022, 2023, 2024, 2025, all the way up to 2027. I have uh, African-American history books. I've got music books. Uh, books about call and response. I've got blues books, Mississippi Delta blues books. Um, So visit me to keep up on what's happening with me and my books. Okay. And Alice Faye, thanks again so much for coming on the show to talk about your work. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. You can find out how to win a free copy of Evicted, The Struggle for the Right to Vote, and Opal Lee and What It Means to Be Free, The True Story of the Grandmother of Juneteenth on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also support Alice Faye and the show through buying her books on our site. Please follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. And our guest will be Nakisha Elise Williams. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.